Well, it is a joy to be opening up God's word with you again. So feel free. We are finishing our journey through the book of Titus this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be hearing the Apostle Paul's final words of instruction to the Christians of Crete. Uh, Titus had been sent to the island of Crete to get the church there, which happens to be his home island, but to get the Christian community there back into alignment, to get the body set right, we heard, for the sake, one of its own thriving, but even more importantly, for the sake of God's mission. And as I mentioned last week, uh, we are going to kind of, at the end of our message today, if anyone has any burning questions or things that you're still wrestling with as we get ready to um, conclude this journey through Titus. Uh, We are going to have a little Q&A chance at the end, so be thinking of your questions, maybe jotting them down. Uh, It doesn't necessarily just have to be on Titus chapter 3. It can be anything that we've talked about so far in these last nine weeks. If you're at home and you're streaming with us, you can type your questions into the chat and Greg will throw them up on the screen for us uh, later. So be thinking about that if there's stuff that you're still processing. But if you remember, the Cretan Christians, the whole reason this letter has been written is because they got sidetracked. They got caught up in debates about circumcision and the finer points of the Old Testament law, and their, their worship services really became these raucous battles over minutiae. And folks were drawing hard lines in the sand, just supremely confident that they were utterly in the right, and that anyone who disagreed with them was not only wrong, but it might not be appropriate to even call them a true brother and sister in Jesus. And all the while, these grumpy, dyspeptic Christians were living lives that were unruly and rebellious. They proclaimed an allegiance to God, but they showed no evidence of his presence at work in them through the way they moved through their everyday lives, both in public and in private. Really, their lives mirrored the the rhythms and the values and the behavior of the paganism that they saw all around them. And it seems that there was no one on the island of Crete that was looking at that just church in crisis and saying, you know what? We want what they have. Now, I imagine a Cretan neighbor's assessment was closer to what Paul said at the beginning of this letter. Their minds and their consciences have been defiled and they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But even though these Cretan Christians had made a mess of things, they were still God's beloved. They were still those for whom Jesus came and gave his life. And there was still hope. Paul says there's still an opportunity to shine the light of Christ on your island. 
They still have the chance to adorn the gospel by giving evidence to a watching world of God's grace at work in them. Grace. That gets us to your homework assignment. Last Sunday, I gave folks the opportunity to store up a bit of God's word in your heart. And I challenged you and I challenged all of us, myself included, to memorize Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Did anyone accept the challenge and decide to store God's word in your heart this week? So if you did, I have an opportunity for you, like we're back in Awana, to share your memory verse. And if you do, there's a prize for you. And if you don't, I'm going to do it and take all the chocolate, regardless of my diet. It's your choice. First up. Anyone? Okay, okay, okay. It's not on the screen. It's not on my hands. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I got it. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the beautiful truth at the heart of this gospel. I'll give you another week. I'm getting the first dibs on the chocolate, though. But I'll give you another week. I took dark chocolate. First come, first serve. Oh, NIV? Sure. Sure. You don't have to do my translation. But I do want to encourage you to store this word in your heart because grace saves us, grace changes us, and grace makes us holy and gloriously new. And it's the work of God in us but we have to say no to our old way of living and yes to a new way of life that is rooted in a willing submission to Christ's leadership and love in all aspects of our lives. Then we'll be able to live into our true identity. And what is our true identity? We are those who Christ calls his own, 
We are Jesus' redeemed and purified people, saved by grace to do good, to reflect God's heart, his character, his world-renewing kingdom out there in our little corner of the earth. Why? It is for the sake of our God's mission of mercy, because he yearns that more and more people would find a home and a future in Jesus. We've been saved to be his beloved, but we've also been saved to do good, to share the good news, to be his witnesses, to adorn the gospel so that God's family grows. And we know that God's family lasts even beyond death and into eternity. And Paul has said a lot in this short letter, but as we get to this final chapter, he wants to make sure that it all solidifies in both our hearts and our minds. So he's going to kind of reinforce what he has said so far. And we're going to just kind of walk through it this morning. So here is Titus chapter 3. Remind them, and literally the Greek there is continually be reminding them. Continually be reminding them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul's setting up this contrast between kind of the deceitful, anarchic, unruly Cretan and this new vision of a a Christian citizen. And he's informing them that that the church as a community has responsibilities in our larger society. And it makes me think of the prophet Jeremiah's word to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. He wrote to them and he said this, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And I feel like the apostle Paul is saying something similar. He's saying show proper respect and appropriate humility towards all people, particularly those in positions of authority. He says, obey the laws, pray for your leaders, pay your taxes. But it's really more than that. It's not just, hey, we're here to be an agent of the status quo. He says, be ready for every good work. Sure, be an invested and engaged, a respectful citizen But it's more than that. Don't you realize Jesus has broken down strongholds? He's making all things new. And the deeper needs of our nation will be addressed as the church lives out the mission of Christ in our world. Seek the welfare of the city, of the hill, of the valley to which I have sent you. Because Jesus is in the business of redemption and reconciliation and renewal. 
I think one of the things that Paul is doing is he's taking this concept that was common in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It was called benefaction. So you come to like the capital city of Crete, which was Knossos, and you'd have the kind of the wealthiest, most influential citizens would make these big extravagant gifts to kind of improve the lives of their city. Maybe they'd build an aqueduct or a library. And in return, they received both public praise and and honor from the authorities for their commitment to their community, for their dedication to their people. And Paul really seems to be kind of co-opting and redefining that idea. He tells the Christians on Crete, he says, hey, I know you might be actually poor, and weak, and not socially influential. But you have the world-transforming grace of God at work among you and within you. You have access to unimaginable wealth and power. And you have an obligation to be benefactors for your city, not to your own glory, but for the public praise of God. So as he comes to this end of this letter, he is calling believers to live lives of sacrificial public Christian service for the sake of the gospel that we proclaim and to the benefit of God's renewing work in the world. And I'll admit that kind of sounds like a hard word. You may want to push back. What does kind of a peaceful, non-combative demeanor really accomplish? Shouldn't we be active and in vocal opposition to the pagan authorities over us? Shouldn't we be focused on achieving the downfall of their administration and, and getting our people in places of power? Shouldn't we refuse to participate in those who are tainted By the culture's corruption. But Paul doesn't seem to emphasize any of those concerns. Instead, what I sense is the supreme confidence in God's sovereignty. He says, let the church be the church for the world. Distinct from the culture, but fully immersed in it. And do not fear, because God is at work. God can still accomplish his purposes when the quote-unquote wrong people are in power. And quote-unquote the wrong ideologies and values are holding sway over our society. He says, no matter what, I will make all things new. And I want you to be partners with me, confident partners in my mission. As I was reflecting on this this week, I remembered the words of a German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who's probably like 95 at this point. Uh, And he said this so beautifully, the way he kind of framed this calling. This is his, what he said. 
Again and again, there have been times when the people of God are persecuted and martyrdom, dying for one's faith, has been enjoined. Then nothing more is possible in history. That is what scripture calls the night when no one can work. Then all that is left is to endure to the end and in that endurance to be saved. In those times, the possibilities of history narrow down, and all that remains is the sole decision to confess or deny. Yet again and again, there have also been and are times of open doors and favorable opportunities for mission, for deaconal service to the poor, for the liberation of the oppressed, Then we stand face to face with almost unlimited possibilities, which can be realized. And we're filled with what Scripture calls joyful confidence that this world can be made better, that the kingdom of God is at hand. In those seasons, hope turns into action, and we already anticipate today something of the new creation of all things which Christ will complete on his day. These are our experiences in the presence of history's ultimate consummation. There will be days when the ground is so hard and people are so unreceptive to the words of the Lord that all we can do is confess with our mouths and And be his witnesses, come what may. And for some around the world, in closed countries and in hostile environments, that's their lived experience. But there are also, take heart, moments where the door is wide open for the people of God to seek the welfare of their cities and to see God do amazing, unexpected, unanticipated things as he brings glimpses of his healing and his justice and his hope to a world that is desperately in need of it. And it seems to say, Paul, that he's saying, don't lose heart. I'm setting right my church for mission, so be ready for every good work. And don't be a jerk, but show kindness to all people. And this is what Paul tells us in verses 3 through 4. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared dot, dot, dot. Our motivation to show grace and patience and kindness to everyone as our knowledge of who we once were before Christ and our experience of God's grace changing us. Knowing that God's not done with us gives us great patience And it helps us remember that God is not done with the difficult person in your life either. 
Let's do a little self-check. Fill in the blank. For we ourselves were once blank before Jesus. How would you fill that in for your own story? Anyone? Lost. Evil. Mine's easy. It was arrogant. (laughs) And I'm praying that the Lord is continuing to uproot that noxious weed from my soul, but... I know that I'm still a work in progress, but praise God, the grace of God is saving me, is changing me, will make me holy and gloriously new. He says, remember where you've come from because of this. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Like last week, Paul's again reminding us of the gospel truth behind this life of godliness and Christian service. God in his mercy has washed us clean. He's made us new. He's forgiven us. We have this new lease on life, not because of anything we did to earn or deserve it, but quite simply because of the overflow of his love that we are the beneficiaries of. In Jesus, we're getting better than we deserve. And we're finding healing, active repair in our brokenness. And Paul says we've been justified by grace. Justification is the declaration of God, the the just judge that someone has had their sins forgiven. And they are now a member of God's covenant family. They are part of his communion. They've been adopted in. And this is a past, present, and future reality as we remember. God vindicates us in the present by what Christ accomplished in the past through the cross and the empty tomb. Yet that judicial verdict that says we are in right standing is not just a legal fiction. It anticipates a future reality in which that verdict will prove true. Because of God's faithfulness to us and the power of his spirit at work in our lives, we will be made wholly new. The fancy theological term is sanctified. As it says in 1 John 3, 2, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. God will graciously shape us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And we're heirs to the fullness of Christ's love and power. And we're the promised recipients of an unquenchable, unending, always victorious life. 
And Paul continues, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. These are the tangible acts of goodness that the Lord calls us to. Doing good, and he says it's, it's excellent and profitable And it stands in sharp contrast with the junk that has been going on in their congregations, the things they've been fighting on that he says are distractions, that they're worthless, that they bring no profit. And he continues, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Again, a, a hard word from Paul. Though I hear his hope of restoration. And I think Paul would make a distinction between disagreement and divisiveness. A divisive person is not only someone who thinks that they're right and you're wrong, but they contend that you're so wrong that you've been disqualified. That you're no longer a part of the family. That we're no longer on the same team chasing after Jesus. And instead of being a source of kind of spiritual correction and renewal, with harshness and, and usually a great deal of charisma, they become this kind of splintering, disruptive force in God's church ultimately to the detriment of God's family. And it really seems that Paul's words here are much about damage control as anything else. And then he finishes the letter with these words. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Some personal remarks. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer... And Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I really wish Larry Nelson were here to hear Scripture sing the praises of a God-honoring lawyer. And Paul needs his legal counsel by his side. And he's saying, speed these two missionaries on their way with radical hospitality, with resources. Keep them on their mission. And this little particular incident gives Paul a chance to give the first kind of imperative, the first command that isn't directed to Titus, but is directed to the church as a whole. He says this in 14, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send their greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to be able to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
Don't get thrown off by that term, good works. This is not us earning God's favor, God's pleasure. These are the acts of goodness that are these visible, tangible results of Christ's salvation in our life. God's grace is intended to change the way we live. And his grace at work in us is meant to be fruitful. It's meant to nourish and to feed and reproduce the life of Christ, the hope of Christ in others. And at the end, he just says it over and over, as we've seen in this chapter, embrace that call. You were saved to do good. You were saved by grace. It wasn't you, but you were saved to be in communion in a family of love with me and to be part of the family business. And the family business in God's family is to do good. He says, if you don't know where to start, start in cases of urgent need. Start by being hyper-local, by being God's provision and care in these situations of crisis that are right in front of you. So as we come to the end of this book, what acts of goodness do you sense Jesus is calling you to? We've been told to be zealous for good works, that this is part of God's salvation working its way out through us. So what does this mean for you? This has been something I think we're starting to wrestle with as a church. As we've started our leadership core and we have our little outreach cohort and our congregational care and we're starting to ask these questions, what does it look like for us as a community to be zealous for good works? But I think it also is something that speaks to each and every one of us. Maybe the Lord is inviting you to connect with the Puyallup Food Bank and to come alongside as we minister to the food insecure in our city in the name of Jesus. We've been helping out Zyger Elementary. They have not been in need of food. So now we're talking about how do we take that and and keep it going when the school is not in a time of need? Maybe we connect with the food bank. Maybe it's coming alongside uh, CareNet, which is down the street, which is uh, CareNet of Puget Sound. It's a kind of a pregnancy crisis center. It is supporting folks that are in the midst of unexpected pregnancy that are not ready to be parents and are scared and are nervous and they provide health resources and medical uh, things and, and mentorship and whatnot. Maybe it means doing good by partnering with that ministry to love on families in crisis. Maybe it's preparing a meal for someone in our congregation that is in need. We're going to be sending out a, a meal train request here this week. Uh, one of our uh, new families that's been visiting with us, um, the wife went into the hospital, was a, seemed like it was going to be a routine kind of an illness, and it ends up being kind of a life-transforming moment in her story. And we get an opportunity to come alongside and be the presence and the love and the support of Christ 
in a moment of urgent need, as they, they figure out life in this new season, in a future that looks different than they expected. Other things, there are just tons of service projects around our facility in the next six months that we're trying to beautify and secure and make safe our campus, not so that it's pretty for us, but so that it might be this welcoming place of oasis of refuge for those in our our community who are seeking after Jesus. If you want to power wash, if you want to weed, if you want to help clean out storage sheds, let us know. We will put you to work. Maybe doing good is serving in some of the ministries here at the church. Loving on kids and training them up in the way of Jesus. Mentoring youth. Serving in men's and women's ministry. Visiting our senior shut-ins. Following up with guests. Not allowing them to come to check out Jesus and then fall through the cracks. Maybe the good that the Lord is calling you to is to have your, your neighbors over for a barbecue. And get to know them and to hear their story and to start to build a relationship that sees how you might be a neighbor like Jesus calls you to the people living next to you. This is hitting really home because we have new neighbors this last week uh, to our left. It's like, okay, doing good, loving on people in the name of Jesus. This is our final word of instruction. Learn to devote yourself to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We might be the beloved family of God, but there are seasons where we have not been the fruitful beloved family of God. And he's saying, get back into alignment. Let my grace change you Submit yourself in all areas to my leadership and my love and do good. Share the gospel. Adorn the gospel by the way you live and do the good works that God has set in advance for you to do. Amen? Amen. Well, let us pray and then we will dive into any questions you guys might have as we finish our journey through Titus. Dear God, this has been an interesting corner of your word. It's been humbling, Lord, a little bit. I feel like I've been on the chiropractor's table and you've been popping things back into joints and sometimes it hurts. But God, you want us to not only experience a fullness of life, you want this body to work, God. Not because we need to earn your love, God, but because your love is so extravagant, you want it to be seen and felt and experienced by other people. And for some reason, you said, my face will still shine through in the brokenness of my kids. My grace will be sufficient So God, we are going to trust that, that your grace is sufficient. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see the good work 
the works of goodness, the acts of kindness, the care and attention and sacrifice that you've called us to expand on behalf of this city that you love. May we learn to devote ourselves. May we be zealous to be your people here in Puyallup, here in South Hill, here in the South Sound. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, any questions? We're, I'm, Want to try to figure out this new rhythm that as we come to the end of a journey, if anyone has a burning question, we want to be able to wrestle with it, answer it, uh, before we move on to the next thing that the Lord has us to dig into. So does anyone have a, a burning question about this journey through Titus? And no shame if you don't, but wanted to kind of create the, uh, the space to ask. I see Larry. So we're talking uh, German theologians today. And, Jörgen uh, Moltmann. Another German theologian, I believe it was Martin Niemöller, uh, at one point in time decided to actually make an attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler, an unsuccessful attempt. Have I got the right theologian? I think I do. No. Bonhoeffer. Thank you. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and so, and we've been talking about submitting to governing authorities. I know that's been a sticky widget for mm-hmm. the body of Christ here in the U.S. and elsewhere over the last couple of years with, you know, how do we respond to government mandates that we don't like and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, where does the, and, and Scripture does support at times um, um, civil disobedience. So where do you feel the lines, where's the balance there as you look at Ephesians and Romans and, and Titus, where's the balance in terms of when are Christians called to actually stand up and say no? Yeah, I think there's, this is kind of the, the tricky piece of this because we come from a culture that was born out of saying no, was born out of declaring independence, was born out of pushing back. And it, it strikes us as a hard word sometimes to submit, right, to governing authorities that don't know the Lord. And I think Scripture gives us some indications. We talk about in Acts when the apostles are pulled before the authorities and they say, hey, speak no longer in the name of this Jesus guy. And they say, hey, we have to obey God rather than men. And I think that that is one of those pieces of discernment that he wants us to wrestle with. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Well, Caesar asked for honor, respect, taxes, all this stuff. And he's, Jesus seems to say, that's fine. Give him those coins with his faces on it. Give it back to him. But what you don't give Caesar is what is God's alone. The wholeness of who you are. Your ultimate allegiance. Your loyalty And I think that when we get these New Testament people who are saying submit to authorities, we want to say, hey, guys, you just don't get it. Yes, they do. Emperor Nero, when Paul's writing Romans 13, is the authority. That dude was crazy, and he lit Christians as tiki torches for his parties. There is something here where it's, We follow the Lamb of God 
who was slain for the sins of the world. And it seems an ineffective way to achieve change. But there is a supreme confidence that the slain lamb of God is the Lion of Judah. Right? And that we can live and walk in the way of Jesus. And there's going to be times where we have to say, no, that's not the way of Jesus, come what may. But we can live and walk in the way of Jesus and leave the results to our Lord. You look at uh, Paul and Silas praying and singing in the jail. And what does God do? He rescues them. But really what he's doing is something even greater than that. Because they don't run out of the prison. They minister to the jailer, their enemy, who's been transformed by the fact that they didn't leave. That they stayed to show concern for their enemy. And he becomes a brother. So it's this thing where we can't ever give to Caesar what is not Caesar's. But we can never neglect the way of Jesus in the hopes of the ends that we want to see accomplished because Jesus is the Lord of those ends and he will accomplish his purposes. So that's what I'd say for that one. Anything else? Luke. Uh, More of a comment than a question. There seems to be a conflation between obedience and submission. And I think we just have to look at Christ's arrest in the Gospels to see what submission to governing authorities looks like. Mm. Um, Christ was a political prisoner, amongst other things, and he actively disobeyed the governing authorities, um, both in spirit and deed. But when it came time to be responsible for that, he was willing to submit nonviolently. He disarms yeah. Peter, who tries to defend him. Yeah. So I think, I think we have a very good example Um, throughout from the Babylonian rebels, the Jewish Babylonian rebels in the Old Testament, to Christ, to all the apostles who were martyred by the governing authorities. Um, I think we have a pretty clear example of where the line is drawn between submission and defiance. Yeah. And in his submission, it doesn't mean that Jesus was not provocative either, right? He's pushing back. He is saying that I am here for a different kingdom that functions differently than this one does. And he's not quiet about it. But again, we never lose the way of Jesus in the midst of all of that. Thank you, Luke. That was wonderful. Yeah. This is not a statement disguised as a question. I honestly don't know the answer. Uh But I was confused about it this last week. Um, It's a question about the phrase principalities and powers. Mm. So um, in Colossians... um, can read my own writing here. 116, it talks about thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And in the context of that, I've always thought that that must be talking about something like seraphims, cherubims, angels, something like yeah. that. But then in um, Ephesians 612, of course, it talks about against principalities, mm. against powers. And I've always read something into that. I don't know if I uh, was accurate in doing that. That, oh, that's interesting. So uh, there's what we call fallen angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but here it's talking about principalities and powers against principalities, against powers. And, and 
over in Colossians, it seems to be talking about our friendly. Yeah, I think what uh, Scripture kind of teaches us is that behind these earthly systems, nations, whatnot, there are spiritual dimensions. And what we see is that we are called to be submissive to earthly rulers, but we are not called at all to not resist the satanic, demonic stuff that is going on behind the scenes, right? We are praying against that. Jesus is kind of in his ministry casting out demons. He is rebuking Satan at every turn. And I think there's this lens that Scripture gives us that what we see in this earth is not the only thing that's going on. And that Christ is going to be in charge, both the earth that we live in and in the spiritual realm. And it is confusing, but I, th- I do believe that we're given that almost double vision. And he's saying, these are not your enemies. These are people that can be saved and transformed by the grace of God. But there is a spirit at work right now in Europe that is causing death and destruction and whatnot. And that is something, there are hope for Russians to find life in Jesus. That is something that the Lord's, the spiritual forces is what the Lord stands against in such fervent opposition and says, I have defeated those powers on the cross and I will make everything new and I will bring justice and judgment and make everything whole again. So last one I saw right here. Ooh, who was living on Crete at the time? So these were old pirates who were conquered by the Romans. They're kind of... Greek in culture, uh, and they're these unruly bunch of folks that uh, now are kind of serving as mercenaries and soldiers around the Mediterranean world, and they were educated and they were cultured, but they were uh, kind of folks all across the ancient world looked at those guys and said, those are the, the liars, those are the cheats, those are the folks that... Uh, are the worst of us. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, they can be the best of you by the power of my grace at work in them. So thank you. We'll stop there.